Hi and welcome to episode 74 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. And today I have Professor Stu Phillips. Hey Stu. How are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Good to be back. No, good. Yes, yes, it's true, isn't it? Um, I was looking at my uh, listings of all the episodes that I've done and uh, you've been on a couple of times. The first time was in July 2014. Um, and, um, um, and then again, I think in February, 2015, of course, um, in the former one, you were with uh, Kev Tipton, who says hi, by the way, he, um, via Twitter, we uh, discussed uh, the fact that you'd be on. So he, he's, (laughs) I know he'll be key. He'll be, he'll be up some mountain somewhere with his trusty dog. No Um, doubt. Yes. (laughs) So listen, uh, Stu, I, I know that listeners, um, um, unless they've been living under a rock or are indeed a rock themselves, um, um, will not have uh, heard of you. So just in case that is the case, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to the listeners, please. Certainly, yeah. It's uh, uh, Stuart Phillips. I'm a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at uh, McMaster University. Brilliant. And... Um, if people, you know, go back on my podcast, they'll see that the primary area of discussion has always been one way or the other to do with protein, which, of course, is an area that you're particularly well known for, although that is not the only areas that um, you have expertise in, I know. Um, but the reason why I wanted to get you on uh, today, Stu, is you um, have a paper that uh, came out, your group came out with a paper recently um, in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, uh, literally just came out, which um, is on this whole topic of uh, uh, losing weight, but more specifically losing body fat and gaining muscle. It's that whole magic sort of bullet area. And of course, lots of people talk about weight loss from the perspective of weight. They never discuss body composition or specifically don't really talk about you know muscle um, and fat specifically. So we all get lost with what their conclusions are or what their statements are. So I thought we would kick this off, Stu, with um, just an overview first of why it's important to talk about weight loss from the perspective of body composition. Sure. Well, so I think that there's, um, it's interesting to talk to people about weight loss because, of course, the easiest thing to measure is just to put someone on a scale. And since most people have a scale kicking around somewhere, and particularly in clinicians' offices, it's, a, it's an outcome that's, that's easy to measure. So um, I, I, personally, I don't believe there's a lot new in weight loss. I think that various dietary combinations can get you there. But to us, it's more important about the composition of what's lost. And clearly, uh, if you think about fat as simply an inert reservoir of uh, stored triglycerides, then it becomes more important to lose fat mass and more important to hang on to metabolically active muscle mass. And you know, some of the health consequences that we always point out about losing muscle mass are that, first of all, it's the largest site of postprandial uh, glucose disposal, so you don't really want to um, eat away your your glucose disposal sink, if you like, uh, and it's a big contributor to your resting metabolic rate, so it's a, a metabolically active tissue that you would like to hang on to, so uh, we talk about weight loss in terms of its, we call it quality, uh, and better quality weight loss is obviously weight that's lost on a scale, but that has the highest possible Uh, ratio of fat to lean. So it's a different way of thinking about weight loss on a scale, if you like. Yeah, and I I like the way you use the word quality. I mean, throughout this podcast, and this is the 74th one, so there's been a lot of different topics. But I guess if we were to use similar words that that can um, sort of transcend some of the boundaries of those topics, quality and quantity does seem to come up a lot, you know, whether we're talking about carbohydrate sort of topics um, and, of course, body composition. But we're so obsessed, and, and by we, I mean, you know, the, the industry, the general public, the media, with this idea of, of weight loss. And one only has to look at, um, you know, products that are marketed. They, they always use the word weight. No one ever refers to you know, quality fat loss, um, weight is a is much more of a powerful word. I know in, in practice that doesn't matter 
what gadgets or devices I use, um, whether it's DEXA or uh, skinfold testing or whatever, um, clients are still very interested in weight. And, you know, you stand on those scales one day and if that number goes up, it induces some pretty serious anxiety <laughs> in people. I mean, before we get into the main topic that I want to get into today, I mean, how do you feel um, we're handling this, uh, this weight stroke body composition uh, uh, sort of topic? Yeah, I, well, you know, so uh, we've been doing some weight loss work actually for, for quite a while now, probably the last five years. It's not the main area of the research that I do, but it's always been a little sort of track. Um, and I've come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, weight loss, if you're just obsessed about a number on a scale, is actually, I, I think it's the wrong way to look at things. And I think that, um, well, I, I've come to the conclusion that I actually think it's, it's almost unethical to ask someone to lose weight through diet alone. Uh, and I say that only because the, the rate of uh, recidivism after you've lost the weight back towards either original weight or even greater weight gain uh, is ridiculously high. So I try and focus on people changing their body composition just a little bit. And so that's losing fat, gaining a little bit of muscle, but always within the context of adding exercise, which, you know, is uh, the benefits of which are, I mean, I don't need to tell anybody who's listening here. And uh, in that sense, then, uh, numbers on a scale in terms of weight loss, I think, I, I tell a lot of people, I think are um, largely irrelevant and shouldn't be the focus. It's, it's, it's much more relevant to talk about composition as opposed to just numbers on a scale. But I understand that's uh, sort of intrinsically unappealing for a number of people. Yes. Um, and I think it's going to be an uphill struggle for, for all of us. And you know, uh, as a practitioner and as a researcher in the areas of practice, I'm always looking for ways of how can we develop, you know, technologies or techniques as practitioners to help deal with those issues. And um, that's why I, I'm, I'm passionate about testing within, within a practice. And I'm very passionate about the use of um, ways of displaying that information, such as test reports um, and other other ways of, of getting that information across to the client to try and teach them this difference between weight and, and body composition. Now, given that most of our listeners are one way or the other going to be interested in performance, we're, we're not. I, I doubt that the bulk of my listeners are just interested in, in generic weight loss. So if we bring body composition into the more performance arena, perhaps you could give us some background as to why body composition as opposed to just weight loss is important in performance right well I, I mean I think if anybody's involved in in either some form of sport or athletics or or if they're involved in bodybuilding or figure competitions it's not lost on anybody who's in that realm or who counsels athletes that you know it's been known for a long time that there's a, a degree of strategic advantage with having a high either strength or power or, you know, name your whatever your performance outcome is to, to body weight ratio. Um, we look at that again as a little bit different in terms of we look at it uh, as a body composition issue. In other words, trying to sort of maximize the muscle mass that you need to perform the activity and not carry around uh, too much fat mass that you probably don't need to perform the activity. Now, you know, if anybody who watched the Super Bowl last weekend realizes that if you are an offensive lineman and your job is simply to get in the way of somebody, um, you know, for a few seconds on a play, then excess body weight in the form of body fat is probably not a disadvantage. But most sports, I think, could uh, probably point to some aspect of uh, physique, if you want to call it that. So lean to fat ratio in which being... Uh, lean has a strategic advantage, and it's probably positional, sport-specific. It's definitely aesthetic uh, in some sports, and you know, so people aren't as interested in the numbers as they are in how much body fat they have, and obviously how much lean mass they have. Yeah, and you know, as you say that, you remind me actually of um, a couple of lectures you 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 gave uh, in London uh, for us on the ISSM diploma program a couple of years ago now. I can't believe it, it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and um, there was, uh, there's two things that came out of those lectures. Well, there's a lot of things that came out of those lectures that 
stuck with me. But two things in particular, one of which, and I'll come back to this in a bit, is this idea of, of publishing means. Um, you know, the, the, there is a, there's a difference between an individual um, and what we see um, on a chart. Um, uh, so that that's one important thing I want to discuss. But, you know, the, 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 the other thing that you did was you showed us some images, and I think it was from Sports Illustrated, where you showed... The, these these pictures of all these different kinds of athletes and boy was it a big variety of different people um, and I like that because it illustrated the fact that we can't just we can't just look at people from the perspective of right let's just put someone into an energy deficit um, let's just get them down to you know 10% body fat there are all kinds of scenarios that will suit an individual depending on what their aims and ambitions are but there are going to be other factors like genetics and various other things and as practitioners as people that are implementing this information into the real world needs to be mindful um, that there's always a bigger picture isn't there yeah absolutely and I mean the, the picture you're referring to um, is quite old now but it, it took uh, pictures of athletes in in pretty uh, I would say skimpy clothing in you know, sort of speedo swimsuits or bathing suits for the women that were there uh, from uh, one woman who was a, a, a power lifter in the heavyweight class down to uh, women who were you know rhythmic gymnasts or or divers or figure skaters and then it had uh, men who were jockeys up to men who were obviously you know bodybuilders and basketball players and I you know everything and the physiques run you know the span from uh, what we would call somebody out of society say oh look that guy's overweight oh look that guy's this that guy's that but that was the physique that suited their sport so there's not one body type that, that's out there there's a, a body sport or or you know whatever it is that you choose to want to look like uh, that, that's right for you and so I, I think that that's a, a message that uh, practitioners have to remember is that it's not always optimal to have low body fat and, and high muscle mass and I think you know you've had Graham Close on the show and yeah. he would be the first to tell you that in his early days with um, you know with, with the uh, rugby union squads he tried to get guys fairly lean and the coach uh, asked him what he was doing to his players because they had lost too much weight and he said well okay then I guess we just need to fatten up and his coach was like well I don't care they have to be a certain weight so that, that's, that, that's the message that comes back sometimes. It's not always optimal to have this, this physique that um, you know, a, a lot of people desire. I think when you step out into the general public, however, it becomes a slightly different story. Uh, athletic performance be damned, um, you, know, you, you better look good uh, <laughs> you know, with, with just a pair of shorts on, so to speak. Yeah, I guess it's that difference between a look and a number, isn't it? In in I guess in some scenarios that that number is definitely relevant because if you go beyond that number, chances are you've got some serious health problems. But on the other hand, if you're looking for a six pack uh, or or you want to have a certain physique that looks amazing to the opposite sex, that's probably not specifically a number, although it would be below a certain percentage number but it wouldn't necessarily be the same for everyone and like you say I, I've worked for many years in professional rugby I've definitely had players who the strength and conditioning or the sports science team are trying to aim for a specific percentage and if that player is say above 12% body fat for example they would be you know punished in some way um, not physically, because obviously the the player was usually bigger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, but there, there would be some some sort of you know protocol would be enacted if they were above that number, and and that didn't always improve the player's performance. So you know, I, yeah, we need to be mindful of what we're dealing with. But going back to you, to I made a comment, and I just don't want to forget about it. So I'll introduce it now. Is you you made this this really good point that I have plagiarized a bit throughout this podcast but since you're here I want I want it to come from you is, <laughs> is this is this idea of, of you know scientists publish means and we need to be mindful of that when we start looking at you know um, you know 20 grams of protein for example to or, or X amount of leucine to trigger a, a threshold or or whatever yeah no I, I think it's important to realize that um, 
and you know, people like Ron Mon and, and, and John Hawley are always reminding me of this, is that, um, and, and Louise Burke as a practitioner uh, would say that, you know, the day that uh, a, a mean change in performance of a group determines a gold medal win or a first place finish, then that's what we'll start focusing on. But individual performances and, you know, when you get down to um, high-end athletics, obviously, are much more important. So certain people respond in certain ways and uh, their genetic makeup or whatever it is uh, determines that. And you just can't ignore that at some level. So uh, the, the things that we, that, that I talk about in scientific papers, I think are generically applicable, um, you know, to the populations we study. And as I say to my students, they're, they're maybe the building block or the foundation of, a, of an argument or practice or something that that somebody else can put into motion. But when it's taken to the highest levels, um, I'll freely admit that we, we don't work with elite athletes. And actually, I think that very few people do. And if they do, then they probably do it in a, a, a very sort of closed environment that doesn't often get a chance to see the light of day as far as a scientific publication. So it, they're different worlds for sure. We think that we provide what I call proof of principle but certainly when it comes to dealing with individual athletes, I'll acknowledge that the variability is, is so great that um, all we're doing is providing you with information. I, I don't mean to, to try and change practice um, in any way, shape, or form. I'm not, I'm not a practitioner. I used to be once, but, uh, but uh, I'm not anymore. So people have to take what we say um, at, at face value for the data that it is. But the application into their world is uh, it's slightly different, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know the the reason why I ask these questions is because I'm trying to ensure that every listener bears in mind, um, and they're going to get bored of me saying the c word all the time. But the context in which this discussion is being had is important. And uh, right. um, so, what I want to get into a bit is um, you, you've you've actually done a number of studies, but the latest one. Um, the title of which was higher compared with lower dietary protein during an energy deficit combined with intense exercise promotes greater lean mass gain and fat mass loss, a randomized trial, which was that American Journal of Clinical Nutrition paper published ahead of print uh, January 27th. So um, I guess folks uh, will, will see that soon, right? Uh, they will, and actually, it'll come out in the March issue, and it, it will be uh, open access, so everybody will be able to download it. And so, I apologize to everybody for the fact that it's not yet that uh, in that state. It's just that's the way the, no the process works. But um, well, that's okay. It I'll, is, I'll, uh, is going to be open access, so everybody can have it. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome, and and uh, I now have a page per podcast, so. I'll link to ResearchGate and the papers and all sorts of things. So that that's wonderful, and I'll, I'll remind folks of that at the end. So um, the reason why I want to get into this is because um, it's a really popular area, this idea of um, manipulating body composition. Um, a lot of people are discussing, you know, the importance of uh, getting people into an energy deficit, um, but there's not so much discussion about how we partition the energy that comes in and other factors like exercise and so on. There's still this mantra of calories in, calories out. Um, but before we break this down, I think it would be uh, wise perhaps if we did reiterate first though the, the primary relevance of energy balance to, to, to weight loss, even if we are specifically trying to look at this from a body composition perspective. Yeah, so, I mean, from that standpoint, as I say to people, I'm, you know, people say, is a calorie still a calorie? And I'm like, of course a calorie is still a calorie. You know, physics hasn't changed and thermodynamics hasn't changed. But, but I think that when you talk about caloric balance within the context of body composition, of course, you have uh, different variables in play is that you have, in the end, you have weight. And that's one variable. But the variable of weight is obviously comprised of a number of different compartments and you know I mean people can put on a, a sweatsuit and sit in the sauna and they can lose uh, even in a short period of time uh, five six seven eight nine ten pounds I mean this is what 
you know, uh, wrestlers and, and weight-specific athletes often do for a weigh-in, for example. But that's, that's not weight that's overly relevant to most people because it's gained back almost instantaneously with rehydration. So, you know, body water is, is, uh, is something that even I think most people would say, oh, well, DEXA is the gold standard. Well, DEXA is not the gold standard for body composition. It, it's a great machine for measuring bone mass. That's what it was made to do. It gives you fat and lean mass as a result, but there are always uh, outcomes that are determined by difference. So um, you have to look, at, I mean, and I'm not saying that it's a bad measure, but it's just a measure that you have to know the limitations of the method. So involved in DEXA is things like changes in fluid balance, for example, uh, that you have to bear in mind. So in, in this paper, what we wanted to do was to get a really good look not just weight on a scale, not just changes in body composition by DEXA, but changes in uh, all of the tissue compartments. So that includes fat, that includes bone, which you know, in the context of a 12-week study would be pretty constant, but it includes the hydration status of the individual then as well as what you get. And eventually by difference is the amount of lean tissue that they have. And assuming that you know their muscle is the majority of lean tissue and that you're the size of your liver and everything else that's lean, so to speak, wouldn't change. That's how you get muscle. Um, but clearly, the, the, the gold standard would be measuring something to do with muscle, taking a biopsy, looking at fiber cross-sectional area, doing an MRI to look at the cross-sectional area. So everybody loves DEXA, and it's a really cool tool, I agree, but it's not the gold standard for measuring body composition. So if your audience wants to take away something about body composition measurement, that's it. is pretty good but it's made to measure bone. You know, um, uh, I have an analogy. I hope you like like this. Uh, I try and explain this um, as well to people. Um, but, but I like to look at each testing method is a little bit like a, a satellite GPS uh, relationship. One satellite is not going to provide a GPS with enough information to give you a precise location as to where you are. You need multiple. And, um, you know, five satellites is better than three satellites, but there is a minimum that you need. And I think, um, for example, with DEXA, as it relates to, to body composition, if, if, if you don't have um, other information that's accurate, for example, uh, fluid balance and hydration, correct height and weight, um, all those sorts of things, then what the DEXA reads, you know, isn't necessarily as accurate in the same way that one... Um, satellite is maybe not as good as you think it would be. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. And you're right, it's, there are multiple components that go into giving a, a, a good estimate of body composition. But, uh, and, you know, don't get me wrong, we've published lots of studies in which we've used de just DEXA as an outcome, and, but acknowledging the limitations of what that really means. People want to say, uh, DEXA measures muscle mass. It doesn't. It measures fat and bone-free mass. Um, if it's differently hydrated, then it includes a hydration component that you haven't or don't know anything about. And um, it's not just muscle. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. we were taken to task, to be fair, uh, by reviewers of our paper on what we were calling. We were saying, well, it's muscle mass. And they said, well, no, it's it's, it's lean body mass, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's muscle. We tried to make obviously the strong argument, but um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it is what it is. Was that reviewer one? <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, reviewer one is generally friendly. Reviewer, reviewer two tends to be the bad cop, and then reviewer three can be the most frustrating. And on this paper, we actually had four reviewers, so uh, we had a stats consultant going at us as well. So I, I want to say that it went through... Um, a particularly rigorous peer review and so if you're out there listening to this and you were peer reviewers one two and three thank you for accepting the paper but you made my life hell for a few months well um th the reason why i'm pleased we're having this discussion and we've gotten into this uh this before actually with your good friend kevin tipton um, um not not on uh, not on not, not specifically about protein or body composition but we've actually done a few sessions both on the ISSN diploma he came and did some uh, sessions on critical appraisal but also on the podcast we've gotten into this and we you know we have to be careful about all the papers that are out there and like you say you know the the the, the good publications will have gone through um, a quality peer review process but you still need to 
have an awareness of the methods. Um, what's, you know, what was going on in the study? How did they actually test for these things? Um, I always teach my students who are becoming sports nutritionists a hell of a lot of exercise physiology, biochemistry, or a strength and conditioning science, not because um, it's something I'm interested in, because I feel that it helps them become better performance nutritionists because they can then understand uh, the needs of their clients, they understand uh, how to read papers, and for example, in this conversation, they can see how actually relevant that study was and in what context they arrived at the information they did. And um, as you say, not all body composition testing methods are equal. Uh, exactly, and I mean, I agree 100% with the ethos of trying to arm people with tools rather than information so that they can go out uh, beyond your teachings and evaluate things for themselves. So I often say to my students is that, you know, not maybe, not maybe in uh, first-year university students who I teach, but in third-year students to say, you know, we're not going to do rote memorization in this course for the main reason that I want you guys to be, you say, beyond when I'm here telling you what the answer is or what I think the answer is, you can make your own mind up. So it's important to be uh, informed about methodology and have enough information to evaluate things yourself because you're not always going to have someone like yourself or myself or, or somebody in front of you telling you how it is, but you you read a press release, you read a newspaper article, you read something in a magazine, and you know if you're diligent enough to go and get the primary article, then you need to have the skills to be able to uh, to assess that. So uh, I applaud you for that, and I applaud anybody who tries to teach people uh, enough so that they can carry out the evaluation themselves, because that's that's a lifelong tool, and that never goes away. But you know, digestion of information is becoming exceptionally difficult now, and uh, the social media helps, but then also hurts uh, that interpretation, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so let's get on topic here. So, you know, you, you there's this paper that um, has come out that I think is fascinating and has proven very popular. Um, but before we get to the latest paper, there's a couple of other papers that, um, that um, studies that you've done in uh, 2009 and 2011, I think it was. Um, where you actually uh, have come up with similar conclusions. Perhaps you could give us some background on those before we get on to the latest paper. Yeah, you know, so it, it's funny. Um, you know, one paper gets uh, a lot of attention, and people asked as soon as we did this, because of course it was done exclusively in men, do you think it would work in women? And I said, well, yeah, actually, we, we published that paper in 2011. They're like, oh, you did? And I said, yeah, you know, we, we showed weight loss. This was a 16-week intervention uh, and muscle gain in a group of women who were in not as big a, of an energy deficit as the men in the current study in, in American Journal, but um, this was in the Journal of Nutrition. Andrea Joss is the first author on the paper, and uh, we showed exactly the same. These women were consuming, it was um, almost 30% of their energy in the form of protein, most of it coming from dairy because it was funded by the Dairy Farmers of Canada, the U.S. National Dairy Council. So it's very high quality protein, but they were able to gain muscle uh, over the course of 16 weeks. So their body composition and weight loss on a scale was actually less than the other groups, but because they gained muscle and lost fat at the same time. So I said, you know, we, we've, we've shown this before. It's, uh, it's doable in women. It's doable over a longer period. And, and, and I get it. I, you know, I, I find it interesting when I hop on social media is that I commented on my Facebook page that it seems that I can impress nobody with scientific finding these days because most people who commented on the paper said, oh, this is something we are, we already knew. <laughs> so yeah. I said, uh, you know, forget, forget paper reviewers or, 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 or journal uh, peer reviewers. Uh, my, my common critics now are, are social media people. And according to them, we've, we've shown something that we've shown before. And, and, that, and that's fair, I think. We've shown it in women prior to our 2011 paper, 2009, in a small group of women, again consuming high dairy, that not in a calorie deficit, who lifted weights, were able to shift their body composition. Uh, they lost two kilos of fat and they gained almost two kilos of muscle. In fact, the women in that study, I've come to the conclusion, were probably some of the, the hardest training and uh, best responders we've ever had, but they, uh, they definitely changed 
their physique and their and their look and you know anecdotally they all of them were like yeah my clothes just fit differently so you know I don't I don't know what that means I think that's a good thing um, but uh, they, they certainly were pleased with the change in their physique. So what we're talking about here is this sort of sweet spot the the, the golden chalice of what what pretty much everyone wants to achieve when you think about fitness and nutrition and and so on as it relates to body composition and that is this idea of losing fat and gaining muscle um so you know it's definitely um not a simple situation because there's a number of things that need to be in place um but Stu, you know perhaps you could give us some background then as to um, how this actually came about? Why, why, why study this? Why not just focus on losing, you know, losing fat, and then let's periodize in another session to gain muscle at another time? Yeah. So that's. I mean, I think that uh, people ask that question, and they say, you know, what what is the best way to do this? And I I think it's probably true, although I don't have a lot of data, but you know, collecting anecdotes from a lot of uh, personal trainers. And I, and I think, you know, in principle, we can answer the question and say that it's a lot easier to go through phases of muscle gain, probably where you're in a, a, a mildly positive energy balance, because that creates a, a substrate from the standpoint of protein and probably uh, hormonal balance from the standpoint of insulin and everything else. Uh, environment where you're going to gain muscle more efficiently than you would when you're in a negative energy balance. And obviously to be in a negative energy balance is when you're going to shed a greater amount of fat than you would if you're close to neutral or uh, working out really hard, let's say. Um, and so usually people sequence these things and I, you know, the usual uh, MO is to gain the muscle and then to lose the fat. Um, but, but a lot of people are, are in a hurry if you like, or a lot of people, and the situation in this in this paper that we just published, it was a four-week study, maybe they have something like a, a physical exam or test coming up, and we thought about guys getting ready for a, a test for the police force or to become a firefighter or even military readiness, for example, and we thought, you know, what could they do in a very short period of time to get as fit as possible, as strong as possible, and or get themselves back in shape. And I, I know there's been a lot of comments about this on social media that we describe the subjects in the study as untrained. The, at the time, th these are trained guys. I mean, their max bench coming in was just over 100 kilos, so 220 pounds. If you've got some untrained people that can bench that, I'd, fair enough. But And at the end of the study, it was about 147 kilos. So they're, they're big, strong men. Uh, weighing on average about 100 kilos, but they weren't currently training. So I think it would be fair to say that they were trained, but not training. Yeah. Um, we, we tried that, honestly, uh, in the paper, and the reviewers <laughs> didn't like that. So so we ended up calling them untrained. Uh, you know, So uh, yeah. I, I, I agree with the, the social media critics, but, but they're not untrained, and it's not a lot of people just call it. They said, oh, this is, this is newbie games, um, which is, you know, had to look that term up, but that meant noob gains, N-O-O-B gains, uh, G-A-I-N-Z. Uh, and I said, no, it's, it, well, it, it, maybe it is, but it's, it's def definitely people coming back to training after taking, uh, you know, being in the off season, for example. So most of these guys were either football players, ice hockey players, rugby players. Uh, we had a couple of um, uh, triathletes, uh, but none of them were currently training, but they were all trained per se. Yeah, I, well, obviously the social media um, lot are are teaching you more than you're teaching them, them Stu. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and in fairness, that they bring up some good points. Um, I I, uh, I suppose, <laughs> in, in 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 deference to them, and and I certainly agree with a lot of the points that were made. Uh, I the thing that maybe uh, shocks and and to some degree upsets me is when the the dismissive tone of a lot of this. It's like we already knew this anyway. And I was like, really? <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, 
you know what? I'm glad that we can do science to at least give you something to talk about on Facebook or Twitter. So, <laughs> well, I I think I think uh, basically that's because uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was telling us this decades ago. I mean, frankly, yeah. you know, we should have listened. <laughs> well, it, it, and my point again is is that uh, you know everybody says that it's possible, and I don't, I don't no, I didn't deny that it was possible, but yeah. in a four week period, in a forty percent energy deficit at two different protein intakes, 1.2 and 2.4 grams per kilogram, and even the 1.2 preserved muscle, and I asked anybody whether they were impressed with that, because that's most people would say that's nowhere near enough protein to preserve muscle, but um, you know, a few people said, oh, it's kind of interesting, and the common question was, why didn't you feed these guys more? And my, my answer is, because I don't think more would have done you any better um, in this situation. So. Uh, again, I stand to be corrected or proven wrong, and certainly if anybody wants to do the study, they're more than welcome. Yeah, I, th I, I think, Stu, though, there's always this issue of there's what we think we know, and there's what, and there's what we actually know. And, it, and it's difficult sometimes to explain what we mean by that statement, isn't it? Because, because yeah. absolute fact is what we know, but what right. we implicitly know... Um, often is taken as being an explicit form of knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, you know, anecdotally, again, people say, oh, anecdotally, I've, I've shown this, or I've worked with bodybuilders, and I've seen this before. And so my question then is always, great, have you published it? Oh, well, no, but, I, but I've seen this, and I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. What did you use to determine body composition? And it's like, well, I use fat calipers and weight on a scale. And I'm like, okay, you know. Fat calipers in the hand of a you know an ISAC level three uh, certified uh, anthropometrist, I, I buy. But you know, with fat calipers, a, a lot of people can make miraculous differences seem real. But as we said, well, let's get right down to the actual nitty gritty of the of the body composition measured by validated measures. And as you point out, what you know, I and I would ask for people to send in uh, however many examples they would like of where this has been shown before. There's a few of them. I, I don't disagree. Um, but we've done it here in a systematic fashion where we fed people the meals and so compliance was good. Uh, and some people question that on social media. But the answer is, well, okay, leave people to their own devices. And if we had done that, how good would the study be? I don't think it would have gotten into the American Journal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So it's a it's a proof of principle study, and it is a, a published, demonstrated fact. And what you say, um, anecdotes, as I point out to a lot of people, and observations, the pearl of which is not data. So you can show me data in a paper, or you can show me uh, your experience in, in, in a book through pictures, which is what a lot of um, personal trainers have done. And to me, that's impressive. But... How do I know about the 50 people that on which it failed and you didn't get that effect, but you're just, you know, uh, your cognitive dissonance says, well, this is what happens because I remember this person. Yeah, yeah. Not to be too dismissive, of course, of people who work with athletes, but my, and, and, and I don't mean to come off as being trite by saying, show me the data, but without the data or the numbers there, you know, it, it could be anything, right? And, and again, not to accuse anybody of lying, of course, but, um, you no, know, no. It, it's there to be there to be proven wrong if, if it's wrong. for sure. Yeah, well, look, that's, that's the whole thing here is it's a healthy discussion and we just need to be mindful of the value of, you know, the statements that we make um, when we enter into these conversations and make statements. How confident are we about you know the source of that information and and uh, that's why I like having these conversations um, with experts like yourself um, so if we if we go back to this study you know what what in terms of um, the evidence the quality evidence that came out of your study what is it that you learned what what are the actual facts that came out of that well, so I think that there's there's two, and, and the two biggest ones are clearly this, is that first of all, um, I mean, for anybody that's cut their energy by 40% over what, uh, and above what they require, and they're exercising six days a week, and, and you know, the, the program's described in the paper, but maybe not in the detail that some people would like, and I'm, I'm happy, I, I've received a lot of emails, and I, I'm not, it's not like I'm not disclosing to anybody what the exercise are, but you only have a certain number of pages to do it, so... Mm -hmm. 
you know, and the descriptions aren't a hundred percent perfect, et cetera. And I get it, but I'll, I'll, I respond to everybody who emails me and I'm happy to share with them the exercise program and you can certainly try it for yourself. Some people think it's, oh, you know, that's sort of kind of interesting, but I could do better. And I'm like, sure, there's a, there's 101 ways to do exercise, but for six days a week, these guys working out pretty hard. If you've ever been in a 40% calorie deficit, I can tell anybody that hasn't done it, it absolutely sucks. All you think about is food. You're hungry the whole time. And so, again, we should have, we, we have some mood measures on these guys. And at the end of the, the four weeks, you can see that their, their negative mood, uh, if you want to call it that, greatly outweighed their positive mood. So they're fairly miserable by the end of four weeks. And all that they talk about, every single you know, conversation that you have, you're like, hey, how you doing? They're like, hungry. <laughs> got it. Uh, loud and clear. Hear you. Hear you. Got it. And, yeah. So, and they're like, well, you're almost done. Go, yeah, only six hours and, you know, six days and eight hours and 37 minutes left. I mean, they, they just look, they were looking forward to the end of the study basically after week one. And they talked nonstop about the strategies that they used to try and stay not hungry. So, in the context of that, 1.2 grams per kilo, but per kilo of body weight per day preserved the amount of muscle that people had. So that, that tells me one thing, is that exercise has to be the biggest driver of muscle preservation, even in a really deep calorie deficit. And I say that with an asterisk beside it, in men who were not untrained, but uh, trained, but not training. So coming back from an off season, if you like, and yes, who had body fat to lose. So they, they weren't lean guys. And everybody said, oh, well, they were, frankly, these guys were obese. Um, I don't know how you benchmark obesity, but they definitely had body fat to lose. And, and, and you know, that's what a lot of athletes look like after the off season. But, uh, and then in the situation of the 2.4 group, clearly the message is that you can actually gain a little bit of lean at the same time that you're losing a lot of fat. So whether you choose to deal in pounds or kilos, in four weeks, these guys lost 11 pounds or 4.9 kilograms of body fat. Not body weight, body fat. And um, everybody's a bit confused. I, I, I've dealt with a couple of people in, in email exchanges about when we look at table four in there and they say, well, the body mass change doesn't line up with the figure two. And I point out is the figure two is non-hydrated, i.e. body water is ruled out in terms of body mass because it's tissue mass changes. So four compartment models. So we've got body mass, we've got lean body mass and fat mass. And yes, those numbers are different because water is a non-issue. Had I just dealt with uh, DEXA and body mass on a scale, the conclusion of this paper would have been that the, the difference between groups was, was non-significant, didn't really matter. So that's that's a different message than the the actual body tissue composition of what's lost. Yeah. So I get, actually, I, I think that's an important point that you've mentioned there. I just want to reiterate something there, just so the listeners are absolutely clear. And this goes back to this thing about making sure that you look at methods and and such, because when you're comparing one study to another, you've got to be careful that you're not comparing apples to apples when it's apples or oranges or um, it's two different kinds of apples. You know, you're comparing a Granny Smith to a, a Cox's apple, for example, right? Right. So let, let's just get a bit more into um, the mechanisms behind this. Um, you know, we're talking about an energy deficit. Got it. We're talking about a major energy deficit, 40%. Um, and we know that you've got some grumpy uh, characters there. Um, and of course, this is a scenario that we will see in the real world, whether it's physique athletes uh, getting ready for uh, going on stage, um, you know, uh, or um, uh, an athlete, you've only got a certain period of time to achieve a goal. This is a realistic scenario. Um, but obviously, the risks are losing more than just weight, you might lose muscle and, and so on. So you've pointed out here, of course, that um, if you achieve a certain level of protein, you can um, help prevent or minimize that situation. If you introduce certain kinds of training at the same time, that further improves what's going on. But me mechanistically, what, what, what is actually happening here? 
Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of things. When you put yourself in a negative energy balance, the, um, obviously the environment favors essentially the oxidation of fat because there's a lot of it around. Uh, your hormonal environment basically shifts towards uh, triglyceride hydrolysis, so your fatty acid levels go up and, and most of your tissues, skeletal muscle and everything else that's able to use it will become users of fat. Now, if you push yourself into a very deep calorie deficit or you consume a lot of a lot of fat and or protein, then you can become obviously ketogenic. So none of these guys were ketogenic. They had uh, enough carbohydrate to keep them out of that state. And I know a lot of other people have said, oh, we should have done keto diets and then, you know, okay, so maybe one day we will. But the bottom line here is that your, your, your body wants to shift towards using fat. But if you don't have enough protein going into the system, then I think the hormonal environment favors a situation, probably because of elevated cortisol, that your muscle will give up some amino acids, mainly to maintain in the times when you need a blood glucose. And that's the primary role of, of cortisol is to uh, basically shift muscle towards a proteolytic state to give up amino acids that become glucose by, by gluconeogenesis. In this situation, in the higher protein group, we gave them enough substrate, i.e. protein, to prevent that uh, rise in cortisol and to prevent the uh, muscle having to give up any of its amino acids and, in a sense, then maximize the time periods for muscle protein synthesis. So I think all we've done is shifted the body away from using protein as a fuel and or substrate for gluconeogenesis in the high protein group and allow the muscle to hang on to more of its tissue so that it could be more anabolic. And it, then it's allowed the body to use fat as a fuel in that situation. Again, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but I think that metabolically and, and, and biologically, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, mechanistically, I mean, there's lots of lots of reasons why that's likely to happen. And we've actually discussed that with various experts on this, on this podcast. So that sort of marries up quite nicely. Um, so, of course, we're not just talking about an energy deficit that's induced purely um, or recommending to achieve an energy deficit of 40% purely by dietary means. The, the, there's an important role of exercise here, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's absolutely critical, to be honest with you. As I said, I, I think when you look at the 1.2 gram per kilogram per day group, that's by most people's standards, that's not a lot of protein, but those guys preserve their muscle. And so to me, that suggests very strongly that the primary driver of you hanging on to muscle, even in the face of a, a really big calorie deficit, is, uh, is exercise. And so obviously resistance exercise being uh, the most potent of the, the exercise modes that we use to, uh, to stimulate uh, protein synthesis, presumably, and to allow your muscle to hang on to its, its protein mass. So, uh, you know, that's, um, I think that's a critical point. And I, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm constantly reminding people of that because beyond the gaining muscle um, sort of phase, uh, I, that to me, it surprised me a lot. I, I actually expected that both groups would have lost muscle. I didn't think we could achieve muscle gain. Uh, I, I said, you know what, guys, it's just too deep of an energy deficit. But you know, people, yeah, well, there you go. So, I mean, I, I, even I was a little bit surprised. So I, I, I think that that's an important point. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's, that's a really useful aspect of this study. Now, we're not just talking, um, you know, uh, on a general level calories, and then we're just trying to optimize um, protein levels. There are also other macronutrients of consideration, um, carbohydrates and fats, what relevance do they have in this situation? Yeah, so and in fairness, we, we had to be a little bit pragmatic here to, to standardize the diets and to provide people with uh, the food. We resorted a lot to these ready-made flash frozen uh, meals that are out there um, from a service that's, that's local uh, that provides most of their meals and, and in fairness here to, to seniors. So they, they require minimal preparation, but we know exactly what they contain. They're very standardized between meals in terms of portion sizes. We know their caloric content. Uh, they're all measured. And so we relied a lot on those. And um, 
So most of the, a lot of people have emailed me saying, well, what would the diets look like? I said, well, yeah, it was pretty much like standard flash frozen food um, on rotating menus according to, you know, subjects' preferences. The one thing, obviously, that we did, and this really differentiated the one group from the other, was to provide them with between two to four protein-containing shakes per day uh, that were made up with whey protein on average, um, you know, between 20 to 30 grams per serve. Um, but they were made up with either full-fat milk, which in, in Canada is three and a quarter percent milk fat, or skimmed milk. And so the difference in fat was what determined um, the, the macronutrient difference with, that made up for the protein. So we kept carbohydrate constant between the groups for the main reason that we thought that that might affect some of the performance outcomes, mainly related to the aerobic work. So, um, you know, it was, it was clamped as a constant between the groups um, around uh, three grams per kilo per day. Excellent. Okay, so going back to protein, Stu, um, you know, how, how much is, uh, how much are we talking when, we, when we're talking about a high protein diet? Uh, you know, again, a lot of people when they have these discussions, they never define what they mean by high, low or medium protein, which of course you do in your paper, but you know, out there in social media in particular, people start talking about these things without actually defining what they mean. And, you know, my idea of high protein is going to be someone else's idea of incredibly high protein. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. So, and I think, again, if we if we go back to um, using the, the RDA or the RNI, and it's the same in the UK as it is in Canada and the United States, it's 0.8 grams per kilo per day. So at 1.2, we're already 50% above the RDA. But uh, again, uh, you know, I don't need to belabor this, but in, in most discussions with athletes, I talk about not the RDA, I say that's a, sort of a minimal level, and I talk about what's optimal. Um, but in, in 2.4, clearly, we're, we're three times the, the RDA. So in that situation, uh, some people just say, oh, that's just an enormously... Uh, ridiculous amount of protein and and you know we the tape the data are in the paper but that's it's 245 grams of protein per, per day versus uh, about 116 or so in the 1.2 group so you know if that's a lot of protein to you then so be it but i i know um jose antonio's done a lot of work where he's gone upwards of 3.3 and 4 grams uh, per kilogram um, and so, you know, I would consider those uh, very high. But in this situation, even in a caloric deficit, uh, 245 grams would have represented around sort of 30 odd percent of their energy intake. So not necessarily uh, a massive amount, but, it, you know, if that's if you're benchmarking it by the RDA, then you would probably argue differently. Absolutely. So, you know, I guess what. What people are going to get out of reading your paper, obviously, but listening to this podcast is there's a great deal of mileage in inducing um, a significant energy deficit that is, um, you know, uh, uh, where we factor in a high amount of protein, as defined by you just there, whereby we're also incorporating um, exercise. And that is a scenario in which you're likely to... Um, at the very least prevent loss of muscle mass um, and basically concentrate all of the, 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 the weight loss into the fat loss compartment, right? Exactly. I mean, and I think is, you know, that's the sort of um, my argument on a lot of social media circles about the difference between low carb, high fat, and I say low carb, high protein. And a lot of people say, Oh, well, protein stimulates insulin release, and so that would inhibit fat oxidation. And when, I, when people say that, I always want to say, well, can you show me some evidence for where uh, those two diets have been compared? Because the main outcome, I think, if you're on a high-fat and lower protein diet, particularly if you're not exercising, would be that you would lose lean mass. So mm. as a substrate, I think the advantage of protein is that clearly it spares lean mass, which is, you know, and again, some people don't, don't care about it. I... I think Kevin Tipton once relayed a story to me about a, a mountain biker that he was talking to that said if he thought he could ride up the mountain with less weight, he would chop his arms off to do so. 
But if he then how would he work with brake leaders on his uh, you know on his bike? So you know it sounds a little extreme, but some athletes just care about weight, pure and simple. Well, especially um, especially up in Scotland, Stu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, yeah, I, I can't testify as to whether the guy actually tried that, but you know, it seems a little drastic to me. But but the main point about protein is again is that there doesn't appear to be, and this is the sort of the bugaboo argument that gets thrown out and not to malign a whole profession, but majority of times by dietitians, um, is that it causes renal failure. And I don't want to go over that again, but the evidence for that is absolutely diabolically incorrect. It doesn't cause renal failure. It may exacerbate existing renal disease in certain patients, but if you're a young and healthy person, then uh, it's not a big issue. So as Jose Antonio has pointed out in, in, in the feedback on, on Facebook, there doesn't appear to be a downside that we can put our finger on with consuming more protein. It, it definitely helps muscle, and it may actually help you lose a little bit of fat in this situation. So, um, I, I think it's you know it's my substrate of preference in a negative energy balance over going high fat and, and keto. I think that that's difficult to perform exercise on as well. But um, obviously, uh, some people have a different opinion. Yes, yes. Well, we won't go there, Stu. Um, but, but uh, you know, the one thing I try and do with these podcasts is is get lots of different um, points of view um, from people, uh, as long as they they've got you know a solid um, uh, background of evidence to support their point of view. And I, I've always maintained throughout this podcast, um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. We just need to arm people with the knowledge so that that knowledge becomes a tool in the toolbox and they just need to learn which tool to use in which scenario and more often than not there's more than one tool and you need to think about you know the preference of the individual a lot of these conversations are had without actually asking the individual themselves what they want to do what do they prefer to do because uh, as you've pointed out um in your uh, uh, lecture that I attended, you know, it, we can argue till the cows come home about which method's better, but overwhelmingly, from a, to improve body composition, um, it, it boils down to the one that you can actually maintain for the longest, right? No, exactly, and, and, and my take on a lot of the different diets that have come out, and there's, you know, I mean, there's thousands of them, obviously, is that you will always find a segment of people that are the hardcore followers slash believers of the diet because they do it and it works for them and they're able to keep doing it and you know clearly they're the most sanctimonious people when it comes to talking about why this diet approach works because it worked for them and I wouldn't dismiss that but that's that's not evidence and you know neither are Brooke sales so my point is is that there are 101 ways to lose weight what we're trying to do is to show you a way here with athletes that is doable in a short period of time and that probably could be used in a situation where you were uh, interested or worried about uh, an athlete's body composition and performance and so none of which um, were changed in an adverse way. Absolutely. Well look, listen Stu, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, I will ensure that all the listeners um, are um, given access to these papers that we've talking about I will put links to them on um, the page for this podcast and when this new paper becomes uh, open access I'll um, I'll change the uh, the link to that from um, from uh, uh, from what it will currently be okay um, yeah, absolutely so um, just uh, uh, so folks uh, can follow you on Twitter, social media, that sort of thing. What's the easiest way that they can um, can uh, subscribe to you? Yeah, I'm at MacKinProf. That's M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F on Twitter. And uh, Facebook, it's uh, Stu Phillips. Or I do have a page that I sort of reserve for when I get a bit of a soapbox argument going. And that's... Uh, <laughs> Stuart Phillips PhD and so you can uh, use it's www.facebook.com SMP PhD oh that's when you're getting official <laughs> yeah that's that's you know yeah. and so uh, that's when you're getting professorial personal page and, yeah. and uh, 
morphed yeah. into something more. But you know, when I when I get out on a soapbox, I go on the other one because uh, sure. I like to dissociate it for when my relatives can hear me rant. So. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially the kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did well, you say there, Dad? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll put all those links on on the page. Um, Fantastic. And of course, uh, they can learn more about you and uh, your research and teaching activities at the um, McMaster University website, correct? You got it. Yeah, yeah. I'm easy, easy to find. The only other Stuart Phillips I compete with in social media is a guy who, like I've said before, uh, is apparently one of the hottest hairdressers in London, buddy. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well. Yeah, I'm, ser I'm serious. He's, he's actually, I don't know whether it's true or not, he's rumored to have given the most expensive haircut in the world. And it's, it's basically uh, a person flew him from London to Italy to, to do their hair. Um, but yeah, he's a, he's a legend. Well, maybe we should have him on to talk about Well, uh, so one day, I, I, I have to do this. I have to go into his, uh, his salon and just say, you know what, buddy? I am Stuart Phillips. I don't know who you are, but <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be it'll be your Stuart Phillips, but I'm the Stuart Phillips. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, listen, Stu, I really appreciate all of your time today. It's been awesome, um, and no doubt we'll get you back on again to share um, your knowledge. Uh, folks can reflect uh, refer back to other podcasts um, we've done on protein. Uh, uh, with you and uh, Kev Tipton, of course. Uh, we've done one on the hormone hypothesis, uh, an absolutely fascinating uh, topic. And for folks that um, want to uh, learn even more and gain a postgraduate qualif qualification, can come and do the ISSN Diploma Postgraduate Program, which is available either in London or via distance learning, where Stu has done some lectures for us. Um, or alternatively, uh, you can come and do a Master of Science in Sports and Exercise Nutrition with me at the University of Middlesex. For all the information relating to our podcasts, uh, degree programs, ISSN diploma, etc., just go to guruperformance.com and um, you'll find out everything you want from there. So once again, thanks, Stu. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'll be bringing you all a podcast back very soon.